0: Melancholy? Isn't it a feeling that we had during the past few months and perhaps still have? This feeling of pensive sadness with sometimes no obvious cause? In this podcast, we will discuss five things about melancholy. We will explore this concept across time, going back to antiquity, to its Greek roots. We will try to define melancholy and find which words we use as equivalent melancholy will be investigated not only in texts but also in the creative arts film music and visual art
1: welcome to this podcast we are here today talking about questions that we have been pursuing for many years and our particular group who i'll introduce in a second my name is mark nichols this is the podcast at which we're going to be discussing five things about melancholy. This work comes out of a a subject that we've been doing at the University of Melbourne's PhD coursework subject on melancholy and the sweetness of sorrow and I'm joined today by my colleagues who have been teaching the subject together over the last six years. My co-coordinator, Professor Véronique Duchesne, an expert in all matters French and French literary cultures, particularly early modern, modern cultures. Uh, Professor John Griffiths, a musicologist, member of university staff at Melbourne for many years and well known in musical circles, both within the university and and well beyond. Uh, He'll be helping us in our discussions um, in relation to questions of Renaissance music studies. We're also uh, joined by Dr Vivian Gaston, art historian and curator of exhibitions uh, in Victoria and certainly Vivian's contribution will be helping us with questions of visual art and she has interest in 19th century art, 18th century art and of course uh, art history generally. So we're going to get going today with a, a discussion and, and uh, of this topic and thinking about this uh, endlessly variable and confronting and changing topic. It's a very interesting time. Uh, I think we always say this every year We, we teach this course that this is the year when melancholy is really interesting. So I think that shows us something about the topic. However, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would be thinking anything other than this is the year in the grip of a global pandemic. And all the various other horrors and and, and, and difficulties that we've faced both locally in Australia and internationally. Uh, And so it it is certainly a great time to take stock of all of our ideas about this topic, and and this is where we're going today. So I I suppose what I I would like to throw out to the group in in general is, is the general topic of, you know. Is melancholy the right word for what most of us are feeling in this particular moment uh, in the pandemic? And that's our general topic, I think, for this podcast. We all have particular interests and, 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 and um, particular expertise and, and particularly temporally. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things for me is the way that we've taken uh, what, to me, as a pretty much a 20th century scholar, always been a sort of very post-Freudian concept and, and and the way I've worked with my colleagues, uh, particularly John and Veronique, and thinking about the, the earlier contexts, uh, classical understandings of this idea of melancholy and where we kind of meet in the middle. So um, this is something that's very much interesting to me. So in a way, I'd like to perhaps kick off and, and ask my co-coordinator, Veronique, to give us some ideas of melancholy as a sort of classical and early modern concept. Good morning, Veronique.
0: Thank you, Mark. So melancholy comes from Greek, from the Greek words melas, melan, Meaning black and cole meaning bile. So melancholy has been known since antiquity, uh, in particular with Hippocrates. So we know Hippocrates as uh, the physician and the, as the father of medicine. And for him, melancholy is a disease. He has created this theory of the four humours and According to him, these four humours are black bile, yellow bile, phlegm and blood. And these humours are very important for our body and, our, and also uh, for our thought, for our mind, for the, the way we live. And what I'm interested in is in the evolution of this concept of melancholy. So with Hippocrates, melancholy is a pathology, an illness, but then with Galen, another physician of the antiquity, melancholy is a temperament. So it's one of the four temperaments that are identified in that period um, until, I would say, the end of early modern period. And then melancholy with Ficino in particular becomes an exception. So melancholy is not an illness anymore. It's just what identifies the genius and in particular, the scholar. So John, what can you say about melancholy and Ficino?
2: Well, I'll put this into the broad context of the interest that humankind has in understanding ourselves. And in the classical period, people were trying to find explanations for how we are both in body and in mind. And when melancholy was a sickness, People were trying to to find some kind of physical explanation of what was going on in the body. And, of course, we know now that some of these biles that they talked about didn't exist at all. And as you rightly said, Veronique, this kind of feeling of sadness that is what we associate with melancholy was something that thinkers like Ficino, who were very important in Western civilization as the, he was one of the principal transmitters of classical philosophy to the modern world through his Latin translations of Plato. What we get here is not seeing melancholy so much as a sickness, but as a, as a state of mind that permits a certain amount of internal thought, soul-searching, you might call it, and that this soul-searching kindles the spark of creativity. This is where, in my field in music, where composers get their ideas. It's also in an era when the beguiling aspect of music was softness. So, and I know all about this as being a loop player, where what you have to do is entice your audience, draw them in, bring them in to a point where they can feel this sense of loneliness, solitude, Sadness, all of the, the the words that we kind of use externally to try and describe melancholy. Now, obviously, in other arts, like in the visual world, and Vivian might tell us, you know, there were all other kinds of images that were used for this kind of portrayal.
3: Yes, well, um, going right through the centuries, we've had so many different aspects of melancholy have been important for the visual arts because as Veronique and and John have also pointed out, although melancholy is something that can be regarded as, as problematic and about sadness, it became associated with genius and indeed creativity. And again, as both of you have indicated, melancholy is about self-reflection and about opening the the human, we think it's mainly human capacity, to entertain thoughts beyond oneself. And I mean, you see that in in Dürer's great depiction of melancholia, which becomes so influential down the centuries, uh, really taken up in the 19th century. But still today, a lot of people know this Dürer work in which it depicts the figure of melancholy who has a sense of great invention and capacity but is not well endowed to follow it through because like all human beings we have our wishes and our imaginations but we can't always achieve what we aim to get uh, and aim to imagine but it's that invention almost of the notion first of the notion of genius which becomes the notion of imagination especially then in the romantic period in the 19th century and then what that comes today, I think we've, if I can go immediately to the present and then we start working back, I think in this COVID situation, we do have, it can be uh, compared uh, to a stage of melancholy because while there's enormous sadness because things have been taken away from us and we're, we're pushed back on our own inner resources, there's also been a lot of small advances, things that people have treasured. You know, they've been brought to an interior spiritual, almost spiritual life sense of maybe we have the capacity within ourselves to grow and expand. And that's the sort of thing that in the later 18th century, the 19th century, started realizing that although melancholy had always been described as, you know, an affliction of art or something really bad you had to deal with maybe there's something good in there and maybe our sense of imagination and freedom and personal expansion is hidden in this kernel of melancholia. And I, I, I feel that COVID is a pretty interesting example of what happens if you're not suffering, if it's not that you've lost your job and your welfare, where obviously COVID has been just terrible. And for a lot of people or if indeed your health has literally been um, impacted, But if you're one of the many, many millions who have just been locked down in Australia, you have uh, the pride of your normal support, but that has brought you to confront your inner self and that expands you potentially in a way melancholy does.
1: I think that's really important to note, and, and I, I think we've all experienced friends, family and colleague who've actually said that about the, ex, the, the contemporary experience. And this idea of melancholy and, and the various words that we would want to associate with it are related to this idea of positive experience. I mean, the appropriation of genius that, that is a very strong theme in Freud for example, is, you know, that is the thing he is kind of saying, well, I'm a bit like this and this is kind of cool, that idea of that sort of, uh, that it is, it is a desirable state of cool, black-wearing introspection uh, and don't we find that character attractive in many ways, at least in Freud, as long as it's a male genius and, and Hamlet is the, is the kind of character that comes up in, in that sort of uh, 20th century formulation that he's picking up on in, in Mourning and Melancholia. I'm interested in, 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 in the way we can start to look at other words. I mean, to me, I, I was thinking about this. Um, I'm always thinking about this, as you guys know. But, the, you know, what are those, uh, you know, First Nations cultures that have hundreds of words for snow? It seems to me that melancholy or melancholia is only one word for a variety of ideas that we, we would associate with. So I'm interested in... Because whenever I used to teach this to undergraduate students, you know, I'd be rabbiting on for hours about this sort of notion of melancholy. And they always say, hang on, hang on, what do you actually mean by that? And, and Veronique's, you know, I, I would refer to Veronique's formulations that she brought up at the beginning. But I, I didn't necessarily find I was getting anywhere. So I'm interested in some of the other words, particularly the words that we're hearing now in this particular moment for, for, for melancholy and, and how people are describing those uh, experiences. Does anyone have any, any, any examples that are coming to mind?
3: Well, we could talk about depression, which is some, some might say that depression's the modern equivalent. I would say I think it's related, but not at all the same. And I'd be very interested in what other people think of that. Despair. I mean, certainly in the past, you know, in the Renaissance and then going forward, despair, uh, states of emotional, almost paralysis were, were linked with melancholia, but it didn't have that positivity. And I wonder whether now we've sort of siphoned off depression over there and then we've got positive psychology over there, whereas maybe before they were allowed to mingle.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. John, uh, what are you hearing out there? <laughs>
2: along the you know the classical lines melancholy was a sickness and a sickness is something that you have to shun and that you have to overcome whereas as we had you know as the title of the course we teach demonstrates such sweet sorrow that there's a certain pleasure that comes from melancholy and that for me is where I cut it off from depression it's not you know although, depression can lead to the same kind of introspection. And of course, so, you know, as a musician, one of the things that I am involved with, melancholy is pretty easy to invoke. You can do it with a single semitone. Um, But why do you do it? Do you do it because you want to invoke melancholy that is so that we can wallow in it so we can enjoy it or to cure it to appease the affliction that is what you try and do with the cure to a sickness and so that ambivalence that's the big dichotomy for me that's the 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 contradiction of the term that i can't resolve
1: Veronique, what what are your what are your um, thoughts on this aspect?
0: So I'm interested in the dichotomy you just mentioned, John, because in literature th- there is a metaphor that is often used for melancholy. It's black sun. So this impossible connection between two words, between black and sun, is sometimes very good in order to describe this state of mind. This Cultural disease that we uh, suffer. And it was particularly uh, used in the 19th century poetry by French poets, but also from other nationalities. And it's also the, the title of a famous book by Julia Kristeva, Black Sun. And she is a psychanalyst and she is interested in, in Freud and psychiatry too. But I would like to mention also that melancholy is an illness, a disease, an exception. That's uh, something we can enjoy, but it's also uh, considered as a sin in the Middle Ages. And melancholia is uh, linked to, in Latin, acedia, this feeling that we have when we disobey the divine order. So when we do not trust in God anymore, and this Acadia was one of the seven sins in the Middle Ages. So it's very important. So when we suffer from melancholy, we always have this idea that we are a little bit, it's our fault. It's it's not good to, to suffer from melancholy.
1: These are themes that come through very strongly, both in in Noir, the Kristeva book, but of course, in in, in Freud's essay, the idea of self-reproaching feelings, which are really important. Kristeva describes, and I'm paraphrasing here, the the melancholic as as a sort of a proud, defiant atheist, that idea of that relating to the aspect of sin. And I think it's interesting to read Kristeva in relation to what Vivian was saying earlier about the, the building capacity and she talks about some marvellous images um, in history of art that which look fairly macabre to us but Kristeva reads them through the melancholy framework as being positive and representing a sort of sparks of creativity and and a sort of great moment for, for those those ideas Viv you had a
3: yes this connection deep connection between sort of mental health and 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 the state of melancholy and maybe that dichotomy. I mean, in one way, it's a, a gift to art because art has been a way out. It's not just simple art therapy. It's just, a, for example, an artist everyone knows, Van Gogh. It was quite clear that he was very self-aware. That was part of it. He was self-aware of his extreme emotional roller coaster that he was often on. He did have medical conditions but he used his art not as a way of sort of wallowing in that, but as a way of sort of stitching it together and used his, in his portraits, he depicted, for example, Dr. Gachet, who was his doctor, but also someone who equally suffered from melancholy and he depicted him as such. So he, he really connected this idea that we we can work on this problem. We must deal with it. We must, think think our way through and I I think there are lots of um consequences for mental health to think more it's not just about saying be positive (laughs) it is about in a sense embracing the melancholy you know it, it it's about understanding the human condition um which does aspire to so much can only achieve so much always fall short that's a great message you are going to fall short but do you want to give up aspiring and if you do it's it's a tough road but that's a human condition
2: you
1: know mm. John uh, so I'm interested in in this idea in relation to the sort of musical cultures you're you're interested in but it, uh, do you feel within some of your your areas of interest that melancholy is something that is a sort of a a lovely dwelling in, in, in the sorrow without, or, or do you see a sort of, I mean, I suspect that most contemporary film cultures that deal with melancholia are looking for the manic way out. But, but, but I'm just wondering with some of your, the contemplative aspects of some of the examples you've discussed over the years, how you see those composers and those musical contexts working?
2: Well, I'd say that in the 16th and certainly the early 17th century, it was clearly cool to be melancholy, and we've had some terrific scholarship done, say relating to the English lutenist composer John Dowland, to show that he, who is kind of the the paragon of a melancholy musician in real life, was quite different, and that you know that he was quite a jolly sod, and that he was able to invoke melancholy. It's like you know turning on and off the, the melancholy switch and you know, now we want to enjoy a bit of melancholy. We want to feel a bit of, you know, those wonderful, tender, intimate feelings that go along with melancholy that bring out the more sensitive side of, of our existence for many of us. We want to give ourselves the opportunity to experience and enjoy being in that part of our own being for a while.
0: So, John, you said that it was fashionable to be a melancholy in the 17th, 16th century. And Vivian, I would like, how does it appear in paintings? How can we see that melancholy was...
3: The thing, oh well, in self-portraits, artists will portray themselves uh, usually bookish. Um, it's it's again this, why it's it's cool is because it shows you're learned and of higher sensibilities. You're refined. You're and you you know if you really want to go to a socio-economic situation, you've got the time to do this. You've got the time to contemplate and so in 17th century and even more so in the 18th century gardens it's all about being in nature and of course it's not nature in the sense that we might think of the Aussie bush or something like that or the Arctic or something spectacular it's more a garden is a cultivated place but it still brings you in touch with emotions and feelings and sensibilities so in Joseph Wright of Derby's 18th century portrait of Rook Boothby, he's lying incredibly well dressed with a top hat and gloves, but he's lying by a stream and he's listening to the tinkling of the stream, and of course he's holding a book by John Jacques Rousseau, his good friend, and you know it's all just a bow for the expansion of his his inner spirit and contemplation. Yeah, so and and that becomes more and more in in the Romantic period, but. Uh, in the 17th and well, the 17th and 18th century really locks in, as John's saying, as something a higher state. I think born out of um, of a very ref- of deep refinement. And I think we needed that to have this sort of growth of the idea, of, uh, allowing for human imagination, because that has been for me a great force for expanding. Everybody has an imagination and a great creative force within each person, so. You know, it's a bit of a positive thread.
1: Most definitely, yeah. Um, so there's lots of material here and, and, and the, the conversation goes on, I think, and, uh, you know, uh, Veronique's made the really interesting point on a number of occasions about also questions to do with the sort of whole... Gestural aspect of melancholy, which is really sort of important. Yeah, I've been working on something from the Rite of Spring, as it's called, and I, for years, and I'm, I realised that half the end of end of the thing, the poor sacrificial dancer is sort of leaning on this, leaning on her on her cheek and giving us that great gesture of melancholy. And, and, uh, you know, we see that so often. I've said this before, walking through the university in the early days of mobile phones. And I thought I saw a whole bunch of melancholic young kids, but of course they're all on on their mobile phones. (laughs) <laughs> it took me about 20 years to actually bother to pick one up. But to me, that seems a wonderful contemporary um, world gesture of melancholy and, you know, those of us who are still wrangling with kids and trying to get them off screens all the time, and indeed ourselves, maybe this is the great point of melancholy. I, I'm going to wrap it up, otherwise we'll be here all day and, and, and no-one will have a chance to go and explore their own melancholy. But I was wondering if my colleagues would permit it. I'd like to ask uh, perhaps each of us to, to offer a particular melancholic text, a piece of music, artwork to explore. A literary example. I'll, I'll chip in with a film example that that might be particularly good for this for this moment in, in our when what we hope, at least in Melbourne, are are, are the dying days of our lockdown, our, our melancholy retreats. What are particularly interesting? Uh, examples of melancholic creative expression that we might want to advise to our our listeners. I'll I'll give my my colleagues a few little moments to think about this while I offer a, um, a, a good filmic example, but I mean, I just think keep it simple, folks. I mean, Hitchcock's Vertigo seems to me to be an incredible foundation text for studies of film melancholy. I think in, in, in many ways it's, it's a wonderful example of a, of a, of a, of a character who uh, played by Jimmy Stewart in in that film, of course, who uh, go, seems to go through so many of the almost textbook expressions of melancholy. He's called a melancholic in the film. The film has a very melancholic mood to it, and 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 it particularly is interesting, I think, for those who are interested, which most of it, all of us are really, in in the the gendering of this notion, the way that in many cultures um, and creative cultures particularly after Freud, the melancholic uh, figure has often been seen, you know, perversely as a male and, and as, as, as a, this expression is therefore the genius male. And, and to me that's really interesting in relation to what we see in... Um, Hitchcock's Vertigo. So I would start with Hitchcock's Vertigo. And don't forget Scorsese's great film, The Age of Innocence, I'll throw that in there. Um, because to me, that's, um, and always will be melancholy on a stick. Veronique, what's going on in literary cultures in, in your head at the moment, particularly, uh, as we're sort of still contemplating our state of retreat due to the global pandemic?
0: So I think for me, the, the most emblematic text about melancholy would be a poem by Gérard de Nerval, the French poet, who committed suicide, actually, um, be- because he couldn't live anymore in his world. And his poem is titled El Desdicado, and it's about and um, these lines. Translated, that would be, I am the dark one, the widower, the unconsoled. I am the prince of Aquitaine, my only star is dead and my star-studded lute carry the black sun of melancholy.
1: Yeah, we've got it, got it in one. And, and how beautiful. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, wow, you know, I, I aspire to that far too readily. Uh, That's a wonderful, wonderful work. And we might find a way to put some of these recommendations into the feed, uh, according to how our colleagues want to to play this. Uh, Vivian, um, what's the... What what image are you seeing in your mind, particularly at the moment?
3: Oh, it's very hard, but perhaps to uh, proceed with this uh, duality or dichotomy for the the lesson for today. Goya's famous "Sleep of reason produces monsters, which is late, late, 1799, so late at the cusp of the new century. And I think a lot of people, when you first see that, it shows the the artist slumped down on a table, you know, so apparently despairing, and behind him all these bats flying up, a sense of monsters, and these clearly are the monsters, and they're clearly of his imagination. But the inscription to it is imagination deserted by reason begets impossible monsters united with reason. She is the mother of all the arts and the source of all their wonders. So it's it's really, that's this moment going into the 19th century when perhaps the idea that the state of melancholy um, can be scary is is something, a trauma that we all go through perhaps, but it also speaks to the human condition and its potentials for for something inspired and and wonderful
1: yeah that's a really really great um, image you've drawn for us there but certainly another um, great text and in, in, in words and and images um, to, for us to think about John you've been thinking a lot about monotones and semitones lately I know yes, um, what have you got for right. us
2: well some languages, lend themselves to this kind of thing. And, I, you know, more individual languages have beautiful individual words that are unique to them. And I was just reflecting on the fact that the poem that Veronique cited uses a Spanish word, el desdichado, and desdicho is one of those Spanish words that means you know let's each other is the unfortunate one the unhappy one it's a, an, a it's just a, a a beautiful word that says that and that led me led my mind to think indeed about semitones and monotones and to go to a Spanish composer of the mid 16th century named Alonso Mudarra who was a viola player and wrote the most uh, beautiful songs. And there are two or three of his that I could mention. The first that I'll mention is um, his setting of Dulces the of Dido's final lament from the end of the Aeneas when she you know, when she plunges the the sword into herself, which Mudarra brings, you know, into such reality through monotone. And another of his songs is the setting of a poem by Jorge Manrique the Coplas, the poem on the death of his father, which is called Recuerde el alma dormida, Remember the sleeping soul in which he just uses semitone inflection to create the most exquisite sense of melancholy that would combine and match and blend in beautifully with all the other examples that we've cited.
1: Mm, That's fantastic. So um, I hope everyone's taken note of those and, and I will speak to our colleagues in, in relation to the podcast to provide those um, uh, references if we can do that. I'm sure we, we will be able to. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone. It's been a fantastic discussion. We always advance this topic and I always think, oh, yeah, I have not thought about that. You know, it's wonderful to, to push things forward uh, in this context and, and I hope for our podcast listeners they'll, they'll feel that they've got a little bit more about, about this topic and, and particularly at this time. And, and I'll remind all our listeners, as, as I will with our colleagues, we, you can't have a little, a, a good, successful melancholic retreat without occasionally venturing out into the world, even timidly, before you go back and 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 like Walter Benjamin talked about Baudelaire, you know, get out into the world and then quickly retreat back and start taking good diary notes and writing good poems. The the melancholy balance, I think, is really important. And and as we're all, particularly those of us who are academically inclined, are a little motivated to to seek out the the, the solitary space, uh, you know. I'm just telling everyone, please get out occasionally, particularly now we can for those of us that can. So thank you all for a wonderful uh, discussion and uh, thanks to our listeners for joining us and and we hope the discussion will continue. We have conferences coming up in the next month or so on this topic. We're all involved in the production of an encyclopaedia of Melancholy with... uh, Garnier Classique in, in Paris this uh, discussion is never going to go away and I think that's a good thing and uh, I welcome you all listeners as included to uh, uh, join us wherever you can in in this context uh, we'll keep pestering you with these t- these sorts of communications into the future thanks everyone it's been a wonderful session uh, uh, go out and enjoy some sun and then bring those observations back for some more melancholy contemplation